0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 29. I'm John, the executive producer here at Financial Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter. And joining me today is Jack. Hey,
1: everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at altf 4 Gamers on Twitter.
0: And Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy. I am uh, at J Thomas, 411 Mania on Twitter. And today we're talking about episode 29 of Critical Role. Whispers, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talisman Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel, Don, Marisha Reyes, Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Last time on episode The Sun Tree, uh, the group went to Whitestone.
1: Uh huh.
0: And this shit happened.
1: <laughs> like bad oh, shit. A, a lot of, of bad shit. really freaky shit. Like in, in terms of. of- in terms of marking a tonal change for the the series this oh, was yeah. This was this was
2: intense. I yes. mean this is this is the dark this is the darkest timeline kind yeah. of. This yeah. is
0: definitely where this this is that point in most campaigns where you've spent the first early levels fucking around and being goofy and saving, you know, saving some kids pet rat from hyenas. Uh and now you find yourself in the hyena pit with the mother of the hyenas you killed looking down at you. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Also, uh, she's a necromancer. Also, she's a necromancer. <laughs> I mean, there, there are lots of ways for that for that uh, uh, that uh, metaphor to go wrong. So, thank you for going to the first one. I guess. <laughs> You're um. Welcome. Anyways. In the tunnel below the tavern, Keyleth continues her ritual to revive the Sun Tree. On the second floor of the tavern, Vaxel down replaces some of the daggers in his blink-back bl- blink belt with wooden stakes he had purchased in on, because we're going full Van Helsing Vampire Hunter here.
1: Also, the blink-back belt, interestingly enough, is made out of both red leather and yellow leather. <laughs> I've just decided.
0: Sure, why not? Um, it's also from Unique New York, but that's a separate <laughs> issue. Uh, he also takes a symbol of Seren Ray that he had received from Father and sews so it in the back of his right glove. Again, full like so. What we're seeing here in in just like the the first moments of this is is uh, Liam O'Brien, the characters take on the trope of a monster hunter suiting up.
1: Right. Um, yeah. also so something- have we have we talked about being genre savvy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We can talk about it again, though.
0: mm hasn't stopped before. Oh,
1: mm-hmm. well, yeah, because, I mean, you've got players being genre-savvy, but then you also have, and I think it's better conducted this way, when you have players give their characters a level of genre-savvy, which can feel meta, but, honestly, you, you have to strike a balance between... All right. You know, there's 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 a level of knowledge that most people have of their own given environment, the the place that they live and the circumstances that they run into on a daily basis, that informs their decisions and their actions, especially as they're preparing for something they're they're planning on facing, um, and having. While, you know, you're, you're, you're starting out rookie characters are frequently completely flabbergasted. You know, it's the you're a wizard Harry moment and he's like, what the fuck does that mean? You know, but you give them 4, 10, 15 years and there's a level of knowledge and and assumptions that they can <laughs> logically make about something that they're going to face. And I feel like for Vax, given... Some of his backstory, which may not have been detailed all that much at this point, but you know he's not, he's not uneducated. Uh, he's 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 spent a good chunk of his life and the vast majority of his recent history out doing the adventurer thing. So there, it's it's not completely unjustified having him go full Van Helsing and be like, "All right, vampires. Well, traditionally they're supposedly weak to." x y and z so i'm gonna max that out if i can
0: and and, to, and i love first of all i love characters that are genre savvy because it, mm-hmm. it it lets you buy in a little bit more there's nothing there's like there's nothing i don't know how many people watch horror movies i don't in general but when i do nothing really pulls me out of the mood of a horror movie more than the characters repeating all the same tropes that every character yep. repeats as if they have never seen a horror movie and in horror movies set in a modern day America, that's an impossibility.
2: Yes. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge horror fan and it's, there are certain things where you kind of have to accept it. Like uh, walking dead, never meant, you know, never mentioned any zombie tropes, that sort of thing. And if it's an ongoing franchise, okay, there's a certain amount that you can say, eh, fine, whatever. Um but like how many times it's it's all of these stupid mistakes that end up getting made. The and that's one of the reasons why like a a, a franchise like Scream was so successful, because it, it it specifically called out the it lampshaded those traits. Mm-hmm. And um even when they still fell prey to them sometimes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um Fear but, Inc. is another good one. You, yes, Fear Inc. is another really one. good one. Right. Um, you, you have characters that are like, oh, this is horror movie shit. Well, then we should.
2: Yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's always nice to see when, when they do something, the characters are actually smart. It, gives, it allows you to root for the heroes and not just wait for the, the, the killer to kill things.
0: Yeah, and it's, and, and, and what this does, in addition to just making you feel more in line with the characters, is it makes for smarter storytelling. Mm-hmm. There can only be so many times that the serial killer walks in on the hot girl in the shower and kills her in the shower. Right. Because we've seen that before. And at some point, it goes, oh, you're just doing, you, you, you've said, I'm gonna make a horror movie. How do people die in horror movies? Okay, hot girl dies in the shower. Uh, a nerdy guy has some sort of ironic death. Black guy just gets killed. Um, the jock survives for a while and then gets impaled on something particularly impressively phallic. Um, Probably about having- and then probably while having sex with the other hot girl who also dies there and then the handful of others either survive or we have one or two unique ways for them to die or oh didn't jason put people in a barrel of acid once we'll do that yeah like and it's to
2: to be completely fair it's not just horror that does this yeah. um as much as I'm a huge fan of horror, I'm also a big fan of romantic comedies. When done well. <laughs> um, and r- r- any anything where you have sort of a, 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 uh, a regimented format to these kinds of things, it's always just it gets ridiculous the 90th time that you see the two people who hate each other the first time they meet. Who 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 get together and etc. With all that, the wacky best friend and 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 so on and so forth. He's
0: a rough um, and tumble kind of guy from the city. She's yeah. a small town girl from out west.
2: Yeah, A some for the of Atlanta, my favorite. The rom- word we're looking for. <laughs> yes, and some of my favorite romantic comedies are ones where they either subvert the trope a little bit, or throw it on its head, or at least have fun with the concept. As it just so happens, I ended up watching um, uh, one of my favorite romantic comedies, probably one that isn't high on a lot of people's list, but uh, "The Girl Next Door" last night um the 2004 film a young high school senior uh girl moves next door who's a porn star yeah. if you've never seen it you should absolutely check it out and it's very smart in how it handles a lot of these sort of sort of things and and actually makes the characters really smart naive in a couple of ways cuz high school kids but Very smart in terms of the genre, and that's something
0: that I really
2: appreciate.
0: Speaking of romantic comedies, those of you that are inclined to go watch them, go watch Love Simon. Because yes, we need more. uh, We need more non-heteronormative romance romance stories that aren't Angels in America.
2: Oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, that would be that would get us (laughs) into a new level of of. (laughs) Of <laughs> distracted to another direction. We actually yeah, just had a conversation about that last night, too. Yep. Nice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, we did. Uh, we're glad we're all yeah. on the same wavelength. So. But yeah, uh, no.
1: And, and from a writing perspective, my, my sort of summary advice would probably be if, if your <clears throat> plot demands that your characters be stupider than normal in order for the plot to progress, There's a badly revise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Revise that yeah um you yep. know i because i some of my earliest uh when you guys were talking about genre savvy and stuff like that some of my earliest memories of being dissatisfied with my entertainment probably date back to when i was about seven <clears throat> or eight years old watching some of these like a uh, old live action disney or or a uh, made for tv movies about the family that decides that city life is too stressful so we're gonna homestead out in the wilderness or something like this and granted i grew up with a park ranger for a father but they immediately go out into the woods and do stupid shit that puts themselves in danger and i'm and i'm an eight-year-old watching this going how can you guys be such big fucking idiots that you don't know that you know okay if you're going into bear country, know how to interact with a bear when you run across it so that, you know, you can either intimidate it or at least interact with it in a moderately safe manner and keep your fucking distance, you know? Yeah. Right. And if you're, if you're losing your eight year olds, you're losing a lot of people. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Never, never use the assumption that, Oh, they're just stupid as an excuse. That's poor writing. Um, Yeah. Unless that is a critical flaw in that character, in which case, own it. Yep. 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 Yeah.
2: There's one other thing I want to talk about as far as as far as Vax, um, that what Vax does in this opening part, and something that I really like as far as this goes is is specifically mm. the Siren Ray thing. Um, and it's. It, it it adds an element to Vax that we have we we've we've seen maybe a couple of hints of early uh, in in recent episodes at this point, but I think it's probably the first really overt sense of that of of that he he he's finding some kind of spiritual direction to him, yeah, and that's something that I think a really good um really good. Ooh, is the purpose of a really good adversary. I mean, we talk about, you know, conflict in, in film is important. Whether you're talking about film in storytelling is important. Whether you're talking about fantasy or sci-fi or horror, or just, you know, straight drama, uh, conflict is important, but a lot of people say that. And they never really talk about why it's important. It's important because, you know it 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 provides a narrative arc but also because it deepens those characters and gives us more of an appreciation for them yeah, and it provides relations this, yeah and this the the presence of uh um the briarwoods gives vax that opportunity to um, sort of Give us an idea that he's heading down this more religious path, which was a small moment in the overall episode, but one that I really, really
0: liked. So after Vax's uh, Van Helsing suit up moment, um, he heads down to talk to Keyleth and asks if she needs anything. She requests holy water, but he only has holy oil. Uh, as we continue on our on our Van Helsing tropes, Um he gives the vow to Keelith anyways, and she also requests some drinking water because the tavern only apparently has old wine and ale. Which I'm not sure what she's complaining about at that point, but that's right. We're not yet to alcoholic Keelith. She <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: might she might have needed the holy water for like a reagent or something. I don't know. Uh,
0: yeah, no, no. I was talking about drinking water, not holy. water. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Percy Vax and Scanlan exit the tavern through the window, and Percy le- as uh, and Percy leads them along, uh, uh, leads them over to a well, which they manage to pull up some clean water and take it back to the tavern. Uh, Vax, Vex, Trinket, and Grog stay behind to guard Keyleth as she continues to perform a ritual uh, with the three of them with uh, Percy Vax and Scanlan uh, heading to the zenith. White stones to Pelor. Uh Vax and Percy stick to the shadows and alleyways, while Scanlan, still disguised as a peasant boy, walks down the middle of the street. Uh they reach the far eastern side of whitestone and follow the path to the basically to the temple but find it locked and here we find i think this is this is probably the first major uh, uh door based boss fight <laughs> <laughs> i think this is where the trope begins i think this is, a, this is where this trope is most explicitly
1: expressed early on right like yeah. we, there there's there's the trope of you know the hardest thing you'll ever fight is a door, and yeah, this starts off as a simple skill challenge that almost escalates to an entire boss fight. You're right. So like- yeah,
0: Percy tries to open the door; it's locked. Vax tries to pick it, but there's no lock. There's no lock; it's barred on the inside. And uh, <laughs> uh, they spend a while trying to figure out how to get inside before Scanlan just dimension doors in. Uh, no, no, he probably. dimension doors in and he can't lift the bar. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> doors in <and laughs> it keeps, it keeps oh, going. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, uh, Percy pulls out a sword that he never uses and it's- hands it to Vax to stick between the two doors under the bar tells Scanlon to wrap some cloth around the blade and help them lift it and the three of them still can't move the bar <laughs>
2: and the door draws blood, okay the sword did but this door Scan- draws
0: blood yes, Stanley <laughs> cutting himself on the blade because Percy told him to wrap a piece of cloth around the sharp blade
1: Unpacked this is this jokes.
0: is the D&D version Cloth cuts. <laughs> this is the D&D version of that
1: one obstacle on the the team building course that your group just cannot get over for some reason.
0: Um Vex eventually v- Vax goes around goes around and climbs up through a window, landing safely inside. Um And then goes in to assist Scanlan lifting the bar with the help of an Unseen Servant and still can't open the door. At which point, Scanlan finally uses Bigby's hand to open the door.
2: Three spells.
0: Three. (laughs) Dimension door, (laughs) Unseen Servant, and Bigby's hand it took to beat this door.
2: (laughs) I love this moment so, so much. I mean... for the for the humor value, but else also, it's nice to bring the characters back down to earth a little bit. It's a humanizing um, moment. It really is. And, and uh, I mean, all... I think everybody's had this happen to them in their, not doors, but everybody's had
0: this happen to them in their campaigns before. We have um, all we have all in real life had a pickle jar that ended up broken because we couldn't get the fucking lid off. <laughs>
2: yep. <laughs> um. I'm one of my favorite stories about one of my campaigns is when I was when I was running, where the party had gotten up to this ridiculous uh, this ridiculous <laughs> power level, and they ended up. Uh, this is in Ferum, and they ended up. Um, uh, uh, fighting a champion of Bane that one of the characters killed in a single round um, without taking any damage. The next session, she got killed
1: by random bandits.
2: <laughs>
1: yep. 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 And it's, it's great for the comedic potential. Yes. Um, it's great for the the grounding of the characters to make them realize you know yeah we're not gods we we still have problems with some basic encounters on occasion the 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 variation i feel is that in writing these can be you you have to put care just like you do have to into every comedic scene If you're a GM, though, if you're running a game, don't try and cultivate one of these situations. No. You know, it's... These... For for tabletop gaming, when those things happen, it will just be a roll of the dice. Every group has that moment when, for whatever reason, for about half an hour, nobody can roll over a seven. And that's when things like this,
0: you you say half an hour, we say entire sessions. That's uh, right.
1: I'm I'm trying
0: I'm trying to project
1: this into what most people would consider average reality, not the the weird end of the statistical universe that final show films operates in. Um, But yeah. And while, you know, having Thor wander across a parking lot and get his ass beat by some random random homeless guy who thinks he's trying to steal his shopping cart is hilarious. You can't. That's something that a writer can make happen because you have control over all circumstances. These sort of things you can't really set up for as a DM. So, so learn to work within your limits. But yeah, they're they're always fantastic when they happen.
0: Yeah, what that moment reminded me of actually was um, the in the Avengers movie, um, Hulk trying to pick up Mjolnir. Yeah. That's exactly what this scene reminded me of. Mm hmm. Anyways. Uh, yep. So, yeah, uh, the person does his when they look around. Uh, the temple looks like it's been ransacked, and Percy's calling out for someone named Father Raynal. Um doesn't seem to get any sort of reaction, but he uh, he does see ash scattered around, in a, around a smoldering brazier. Um, which is absent from other bra- from the other braziers in the room, and so he uh, moves in and investigates and finds a portion of a burnt note underneath the ashes. Ashes, um, which Matthew, being a much better DM than I will ever be, uh, produced from his note from his paperwork.
1: Yep. Okay, so not so much a writing thing, but just a storytelling thing. If you're playing games in person physical props are worth their weight seriously like Mm -hmm. if you get yeah if make and print maps and things and scraps of journal paper and old manuscripts and 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 paper products are usually the easiest one to make because you know with with some with some coffee grounds and a functional oven everybody can make a reasonable facsimile of a a, a piece of aged parchment, you know, hit it, hit it around the edges with a lighter, and you're good to go. Um, but yeah, yeah, use props if you can. As, I, I, as, as, if, as an old,
0: if, as an old theater person, use props. Yeah, yeah, use props if you have the time and resources. Right. Do not work yourself to death making props. Right. Yeah. Um, but the uh the, the the note appears to be some sort of. Um, commentary on a weapon or something—some uh, sort of distillation—that uh, somebody seems to be working on. Um, uh, we're not certain. We're not quite certain what the conversation, uh, what the 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 note appears to be about, or who wrote it. Um. although uh, Percy seems to think some of the elements that they're talking about resemble uh, the black powder that he uses to make ammunition. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I mean, the assumption that he makes is that they're working on recreating his discovery, yep. which is to say Percy invented the firearms that he uses and also invented the black powder that is used with them. <clears throat> um. He also notices some elements uh, on the altar, that are that that uh are reminiscent of the black powder he uses, which is sort of where he sort of congeals these two bits of information. Um uh, Percy and Vax both yeah, walk to a CSI door. CSI whitestone, basically. Yeah as well. CSI Whitestone happens. Uh, Percy and Vax walk to a door uh walk to a nearby door and as they open it they're immediately hit with the smell of decay uh and moving inside find the remains of Father Raynal long since past. Scanlon investigates the body and discovers a series of puncture wounds from a rapier in his torso. Uh, everything of interest has been taken from him and from him and from the room. Uh, and the various symbols of Pelor throughout the temple have been defaced or destroyed. Vax grabs a few medallions that could possibly be cleaned off. Uh, <laughs> and and
1: that action of Vax grabbing those medallions, honestly, to me is, is a very telling detail that comes into this. Because a, a lot of times stories like this, they tend to be fairly narrow-focused, and the uh, the protagonists mainly focus on things that are of immediate or apparent use to them. Um, but if you're going into a situation like this with a with a level of reality grounded, um where you have a civilization or a society, or in this case just a single a single town, that needs help needs recuperation and and rejuvenation the idea of okay the current power structure has defaced these objects that are fairly closely tied you know especially in societies like this where religion is a strong uh foundational aspect of daily life and something that is venerated and valued by most of the the inhabitants and you say all right But these ones we could salvage kind of with an eye down the road saying, if we can fix, repair, clean these up, and we eventually get this place back on its feet and have a functional power structure in place, and we can go back to what these people actually need to put things back to normal. You know, Vax's Vax's motivation in this could be construed as oh, vampires don't like religious stuff, maybe I can use this to fight the vampires, but I think there's also the second layer to it of if we can salvage the damaged history of this place and eventually restore it, that's going to have a much longer term and more beneficial effect for not only just the immediate uh, day-to-day, but for the future of this this city as a whole. And they're already starting to lay the groundwork for things like that.
0: Well, which i found
1: which i found very very kind of yeah. uh inspiring from a, from a, a storyteller perspective
0: and, and there's a couple of different ways you can interpret that and that's uh-huh. that's 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 the that mark of a good character is when you can look at that character and and read an action a couple of different ways that means that you can inter- that means that they have more going on than just a uh-huh. one track mind yeah they've got depth mm-hmm. um so yeah um he takes the, he, he, he takes the, uh, the religious symbols and they walk back out in the main temple area. Um, as they do, they hear a sound that sounds like sort of a strong, uh, a strong wailing wind, but there's no wind blowing. Um, Vax hides, uh, Scanlan and Percy both turn invisible and the shimmering form of a woman appears in the temple translucent and letting out, a, letting out groans and gasps. It appears to be some form of a banshee. um, Glancing out the room, it immediately sees Percy and Scanlan, who thought themselves invisible, and begins to react. Um, Vax throws in, uh, throws in, uh, throws his dagger and two wooden stakes at it. Um, the dagger hits and returns to his belt, and the stakes just go right through and hit the ground. Which, which is is another. While this is still a dramatic moment, is another one of those. This is this is another one of those instances of these characters have a little bit of genre savvy but don't necessarily know the specifics. Mm-hmm. Um which I internalize as not necessarily meta knowledge but like Vax has heard stories of vampires and the undead but has never actually faced them and so all of the inf- all the things that he is doing is based off of hearsay non-actual knowledge and throwing the throwing the stakes just sort of you know, solidifies that a little bit more.
2: Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the dagger dagger goes back to his belt. The stakes just hit the ground. Um, The the banshee goes immediately, uh, sort of moves between the three of them and lets out a scream, um, which immediately crumples Percy to the ground. Leaving Scanlan and Vax, uh, uh, Scanlon and Vax to deal with the the, the creature. Because um, don't
1: fuck with banshees. No. Nope. Especially when you don't have a cleric around. Hmm.
0: No. Uh, they 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 battle with this creature for a little while, moving around the room with Scanlan, uh, hitting it with a lightning bolt that doesn't seem to do as much effect. That doesn't seem to have as much effect as he would like it to. Um and also using healing word on Percy to bring him back to consciousness. They move around the room. The Banshee moving in, trying, still trying to kill Percy, uh, with a physical attack. Um, and and knocking him unconscious again. As we begin to play what we what we here at Final Show Films term the yo yo of life. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Good. Um, as Percy gets knocked knocked unconscious, the Banshee drifts the Banshee drifts back away from the party. Um Scanlan throughout this throughout this time is is asking hey should we leave hey should we leave and Vax at this point goes from a maybe in a moment to no let's kill this <laughs> because you know it's knocked out his buddy twice now um eventually they do kill it uh with Scanlan using Bigby's hand to backhand it into oblivion which which has some problematic interpretations but is not inherently problematic <laughs> I, th- I think I,
2: think, <laughs> I think the, that the, is the sound of somebody not having thought of that until
1: that particular moment <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the feminists in the room will agree that you, while the patriarchal metaphor might be intact from a pragmatic perspective when you've got an undead entity of any gender trying to kill you, you're allowed to kill it back with it's whatever that, means are at your disposal. It's
0: hmm? not the killing it that's the problematic part. No, it's the methodology. Hmm? Yes, I can't believe not. Yeah. I can't believe you hadn't thought about that before, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I never had that. Uh, but...
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. He yeah. Continues to be that guy. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. um, uh-huh. <laughs> that aside, <laughs> Scanlan's uh, use of the aside. <laughs> um, Vax goes over to Percy, feeds him a healing potion, picking him back up, and uh, they decide to check the other room very quickly and then leave. The other room is a small kitchen. This seems to have been used less than a week ago, so indicating that somebody at least has been using it. That, along with the note that they found, um, seemed indicating that somebody had been using this location after killing uh, the dead father. Um, Percy hands Vax the design, which he says is part of the DeRolo family crest, and Vax begins carving it onto the stone of the altar. Percy drags Father Reynolds' body out of the room and leaves him in front of the altar. And after finishing uh, his first carve, uh, uh carving backs goes to the door of the temple and carves Pelor lives in Whitestone. And then picks up the stakes he threw earlier, as well as a few extra pieces of splintered wood around the room from uh, around the room, and the three of them exit as the subject. You
1: can never have too many stakes. And like, honestly, there's there's a level of sort of incongruity here. Um like Okay, the carving the crest, the the Paylor supportive graffiti, that sort of thing makes sense thematically to me. And then they take one of the victims and just sort of leave him in a display, kind of. I don't know. As a writer, I would have done the first two, but not the third one. Because the third one is, is basically, I mean, it feels like heads on spikes to me, which if you're coming in in support of the town, generally you wouldn't take one of the inhabitants of the town who you'd be in a good relationship with, were they alive, and hang their body from an altar, probably. I, I don't know. What do you guys think?
0: Um, mm. In my mind, it was less that and more returning him to his rightful place. That's fair. I we mean, can't, We can't bury him, because if we bury him, they're just going to reanimate him. But, um, but we can lay him to rest in front of his altar. And in his place of worship. Mm-hmm. That's what that I felt like I mean,
1: to I have a feeling that Percy was trying to go for the Cucullan or the El Cid maneuver. And just the way it was phrased kind of might not have communicated that fully. Yeah,
2: yeah it's one of those things that I think in a in a in a role playing campaign it, you can definitely see where they're coming from but if this is somebody just writing this you probably would not have them do um because it does when you're leaving somebody as sort of a symbol when you're leaving a body as a symbol that's definitely conjures up very joffrey-esque thoughts
1: yes yep
0: yeah like there, there certainly wouldn't be something that you would write uh, and it might not have been like the the best move uh on part but of the characters sense. but it's an it's one that at least you can understand where they're coming from and why they did it yeah much more so than you know murdering the old lady and letting the other guy go <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> never forget that
0: moment <laughs> never forget <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah <clears throat> they make their way back to the tavern and as they do they pass a small group of whites and citizens conversing in a desperate tone Staying with them is an older gentleman they appear to be having an argument about farm shipments um, the older man stops situa- that the rest of the situation is out of his control as it has been decreed excuse me as it has been decreed by Sir Carrion uh, Carrion again I will remark subtle name you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if the villagers really, can provide- really, really slipping it in
1: past the radar, there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> if the villagers can't provide taxes, then uh, if they really can't provide food, then taxes will be collected, and taxes can be paid. Then there are other things that can be taken. Your standard uh, 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 tyrannical rule, kind of set of series of laws.
1: Also, the vague implied threat, usually more scary than the specific on-the-nose threat.
0: (laughs) Yarp. Um, He turns turns away from the group and notices Scanlan and Percy still disguised as peasants. Not recognizing Percy, he brings the two two of his guards forward. Percy manages to convince him that he's a simple worker, and they eventually leave with his guards. They make it back to the tavern shortly after nightfall. Keyleth is almost complete with a ritual and Vex has been watching over her. Percy goes up to the second floor to keep an eye on the sun tree, and he occasionally sees one of the zombie giants passing through on patrol and also begins to see several humanoid guards that had not been out during the day. Their movements seem unnatural. White stone.
1: Affirmative action for the undead since
0: I'm mm-hmm. from <laughs> Which is code for zombies or vampires. Or skeletons. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of different things that can be code for.
2: Or other such undead, unnatural things.
0: Ghouls projects? <laughs> As Kila completes her, completes her ritual, she casts Sunbeam to try to infuse it into the tree without damaging it. <laughs> <laughs> I, cast, I cast Fireball to light the campfire. <laughs> <laughs> shit, I forgot my matches. It's okay,
1: guys. I've got a grenade.
0: Those <laughs> 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 so that don't know why we're making these jokes, Sunbeam is an off- it's a high-level offensive spell meant to destroy shit. Yeah, but... uh, Rerun rerun
2: goes camping. In the character's defense, there have been some creative uses for offensive spells allowed in the past.
0: Oh, no. Like, it's absolutely a reasonable idea. It's just funny. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, no, and honestly, as depending on the
1: setting and the system that you're running, um, there can be... Varying levels of application. Uh, Personally, I like to contrast Dungeons & Dragons versus one of the World of Darkness mage games. Where D&D, being a very sort of tactical, battle map-based thing, tends to be extremely explicit about what a spell does. Yep. And and the implication is, and the spell doesn't do anything else. Whereas a World of Darkness mage game...
0: (laughs) spells can do pretty much anything spells are you more know, a suggestion Rotes right. are more a suggestion than menial.
1: spells are more just a hey here are some basic concepts both concrete and abstract that i can fuss around with if mm-hmm. i can explain it in a way that makes sense and the storyteller is okay with there's a chance i'll be able to uh, achieve a given effect now from from a D and D perspective, yeah, sunbeam is basically the sunlight version of a mi- mashup between a laser and a flamethrower. But if you're thinking about it,
0: more laser than what's
1: right, more laser than flamethrower. What's good for plants? Sunlight, der, you know. Um, so there's, yes. it's not completely illogical. It's just how much leeway is your is your DM going to give you as far as. Alright, so you've got a magic spell that can do some pretty intense stuff with just sunlight. Does that mean that you can then do use that same spell to do other things with sunlight that are just less intense? Some people would say yes, some people would say no.
0: And, uh, in her defense, it does work. Um, the seeds and greenery begin to grow in the soil around here, but the sun tree itself does not appear to be having any reaction. Might be because you're shining the sunlight on the roots... Or because rather the sun than the foliage, tree. <laughs> yeah, rather <laughs> than the foliage. Or because something else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, either way, uh, uh, frustrated, she releases the full power of her sunbeam and accidentally destroys some of the roots and sets fire to portions of the tree. <laughs> Vex immediately pulls out the cloak and starts smothering the flames.
1: Again, <laughs> uh, yeah. things have gotten out of control.
0: Um, once the once the flames are all out, they see that the area surrounding the charred parts are more vibrant brown color, as if the energy from the sunbeam had some effect in revitalizing the tree. The vibrancy spreads a bit as Keyleth encourages it along. However, the effect soon stops and begins to reverse, and the all all of the newly sprouted greenery around the tree begins to wither, crumble, and turn to ash. Uh, Keyleth takes holy oil and tries to spread it all over the roots, and after a moment, the oil just burns off and evaporates. Based on that, Cale determines that there is something further below the ground, beneath the tree, that is sucking the life out of the land. And as such, nothing that she can really do right now will have any lasting effect until that whatever is dealt with. Uh, Vex uses primal awareness... Getting to the, (laughs) root of the problem,
1: apparently. Yes.
0: Vex uses her primeval awareness to check for any nearby, nearby vampiric presence and holy shit, multiple presences are above her. <laughs> above, below, and to the north, and to the, above, below, to the north, and throughout the city. Uh, Keyleth apologizes to the group for being unable to fix the tree, but they're all basically like, you know, hey, don't worry, you did what you could. We weren't really expecting m- much, so. um, And which is not to say that, Keyleth, you're useless, but bad shit's going down.
1: Yeah. And if you if, if we could fix it by sitting underground for eight hours, I feel like somebody would have probably already done that by now.
0: Yeah.
2: Damn it, Keyleth, how dare you not fix
0: something that's
2: unfixable?
0: Right. <laughs> that being said, Percy has an idea. Kill Carrion Stonefell. With that lovely idea, they go to bed. Um... Everyone, uh, throughout the night, Percy gets uh, uh, racked with nightmares, uh, uh, whispers and voices infiltrating his dream. Everybody else seems to uh, sleep fairly soundly. Although uh, it gets hella cold. It does get very, very cold. Um, And That's in the morning, neat. Percy continues to dwell in his nightmares with an uncontrolled tremor in his voice. Caleb notices that Percy seems to be unwell after the night's rest and offers him some good berries, everyone's favorite bland snack, uh, which she accepts. Scanlan. Druid trail mix. Mm-hmm. Basically. Uh, Scanlan recasts Seeming on the group, and Trinket and Vax uh, requests to be disguised as an old lady with a crazy eye, so Scanlan gives her two crazy eyes. Sorry, Vax requests to be disguised as an old lady with a crazy eye. Um... Percy leaves Fox Machine to a shop called Beyond the Horizon. When they get there, they see the building is partially collapsed and ruined, the door torn off its hinges, and the ceiling falling inward. Looking inside, most of the furniture has been broken or taken, and all the shelves have been emptied out. It appears that someone else had trouble with the door as well. Judging from the amount of dust covering the main desk, the shop has been probably. It looks to be it looks to have been abandoned for at least six months, possibly a year. Uh, Vex investigates and discovers a door to a cellar. Looking down at the room, she sees that it also was clean, was entirely cleaned out. They leave the shop and head to the closest mansion, hoping that it is the one that Sir Carian lives in. The gate surrounding it is locked and there are no immediate signs of life. but they can see a light coming from one of the doors. Vox debates for several minutes on whether to charge the mansion now and kill anyone they find, or to ask around for more information first. As one of the zombie giants comes around the corner and starts heading towards them, the group quickly decide uh, to head to the Lady's Chamber, some simple to Arathus.
2: In a rare moment
1: of uh, of common sense in the group,
0: <laughs> let's talk about this elsewhere.
1: It's amazing what people will do when they actually have a sense of self preservation, right?
0: They make their way Hashtag southward. They make their way southward. We're not there yet, Jack. <laughs> That's a ways off.
1: That's a ways off.
0: Um, heading down. Uh, they they. they on their way to the lady's Chamber, they pass by several citizens, and Scanlan and Vex stop to talk to them. Um, Scanlan, still disguised as a peasant boy, pretends that his father sent him to take a gift to Sir Carian, and that's where he can go to deliver it. Believing him, the tells him that Sir Carian's boat is in the southeast of the city. Now, Scanlan points to the one that he just came from, and is told uh, that, that you don't want to go find the Countess there. She gives him the directions to the correct mansion, and the two whites Zone residents continue on their way.
1: Implication being, I think, that the Countess is who lives in that particular house.
0: Mansion, also that whatever, the Countess right? Also the Countess is somewhat worse than Carrion. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um because it didn't seem to like that. It seems that Carrion, at the very least, it makes sense that one might be taking something to him. Apparently, the Countess, you don't even want to meet. Yep. <laughs> Um, Vox Machina can make their way uh, to the temple as they enter and see a few people sitting inside, some of them praying quietly. Further in, a group of four people are sitting and looking up at an older man wearing uh, weathered gray robes. Percy recognizes him as Keeper Yenin, the head priest of Wrathless and Whitestone, uh, finishing up a small sermon. Uh, Percy knows that Keeper Yenin can be a bit obnoxious, but he does a good job of keeping the people's spirits up. As the sermon winds down and the listeners begin to wander off, Percy walks up to him, still under the skies of seeming. He asks the priest if he thinks there is any hope for Whitestone. He began replies that the people of Whitestone are resilient, and even though the town has become a prison, eventually the rest of the world will see the atrocity <laughs> there. Uh, they talk of possible help coming from the outside, and Percy, Percy offers to give a prayer. <clears throat> I pray, uh, and his prayer is, specifically, I pray for a day to come when outside forces can rally the people of Whitestone again, that strangers may come and bring with them salvation, and that the people will seize it. Keeper is confused and suspicious of these words, and Percy tells him to look for signs of salvation and hands him a piece of parchment. Then walks away. Um, the rest of Vox Machina turn to leave as well, but suddenly Keeper calls for them to wait. As we get a really good uh, cinematic moment here of uh-huh. Keeper holding out the parchment, which has a portion of the Dorolo friendly crest drawn upon it, and asks what it means. Percy answers, "What appears dead may not necessarily be dead. Be uh, what appears dead may not necessarily be death." And that with and that with the sha sorry. This was a really awkwardly stated sentence. And it's that thousand. with the yeah, and that with the shadow of death over the city. Perhaps there is life deep underground. Perhaps things that appeared, ended, and gone are perhaps continuing to this day and may rise again. it in slowly nods and stares intensely at Percy before quickly folding the piece of parchment and stuffing it in his pouch. Because of one of the watchperson begins talking to them as Vox leaves. The party exits the temple and heads towards Sir Carian's house. On the way there, Percy has another coughing fit. Uh, Keyleth expresses concern for his, mental, for his health and sa- sanity, um, but he says he's fine. Rain begins to fall, making the ground muddy, and Grog uses a dust of tracelessness to erase their footprints. Spoiler alert, he's not fine. <laughs> Gee, you think? <laughs> really? What, what, what gave you that conclusion? Uh, there's there's no, no
1: foreshadowing in this game. What are you talking about?
0: They reach the house <clears throat> with two thuggish-looking guards uh, that are posted outside on the front porch. A black iron gate surrounds the property, uh, which is an interesting statement because a gate doesn't typically surround a property so much as a fence, fence does. Has a gate in it, but I digress.
1: I like the idea though that it's it's a single gate. its just like
0: you or know. it's like just four gates, like the the fence. Is no,
1: there. no, one gate. <laughs> that makes up two yep. halves of a square and yes. has, a single, <laughs> has a single hinge post in the back and you just shove both halves way open.
2: Yep. I, yeah, I was, I was thinking a circular one, but yes, that all... Yeah, you just you unlock it and then you just push the whole gate
0: open. And then so it's less of a gate, throw, more mm-hmm. of a clamshell,
1: really. Right, it's a clamshell yeah. shaped like
0: brackets. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. got it, got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the party circles around the building looking for the best interest and notices, notices, a, notices a cellar door and several windows on the first floor there's light coming from within and movement is visible through one of the windows vex casts everyone say it with me on the party Keeleth casts heat, metals on the bar, uh, heat metal on the bars of the fence and grog grabs the bars and bends the gate down scalding his hands for a moment before Keeleth uses a healing word on him again creative use of spells they all quickly sneak over the gate and across the slick grass of the yard, pressing up against the back wall. Vax tries uh, tries the door. Of the cellar finds it locked and easily picks it, pulling it open. The twins uh, that be that making it now one to one wins versus losses for Vax picking doors. <laughs> um, <laughs> pulling it open, the twins check the passage and determine it it to be safe. They all dive inside the cellar and close the door behind them as another zombie giant makes its way towards the building. In the inside the cellar is pitch black. Vax pulls out his flame-tongued dagger and Kino lights her hands on fire, providing enough light to see that that it is a wine cellar. Grog grabs specifically 18 bottles of fine wine and places them in the bag of holding. There is a small ladder in the corner leading up to the interior of the house. The twins go over to it and listen, and they don't hear anything because they're listening for a ladder. Uh, <laughs> Vax does hear uh, pacing footsteps, however, about four feet away and two low voices having conversation. He recognizes one of the voices as the older balding man that he, Percy, and Scanlon encountered in the street the day before. From how the muffled the voices are, Vax determines that two individuals are not directly above the cellar. Vax tells the rest of the group what he heard, and they decide to send him up as a scout. Caelus wishes him good luck. He climbs his ladder and goes to the trapdoor without making a sound. Like when sees that he is inside a small, strain, a small storage room, currently being used as a closet. Vax listens to the floor when he, uh, while he searches through the pockets of the hanging coats. Uh, he hears voices immediately outside and finds 47 gold pieces. Because rich people just leave gold in their pockets, apparently. Yep. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's poor planning on their part, really.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, hey, if you're going to leave money in the pockets of garments that you have in a locked closet, maybe not locked, but a closet securely located inside your house, you're going to have to expect that a rogue is going to show up and steal your shit. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, not to be too victim-blamey, but still.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I trap
0: my closet. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what, that's what acid arrow traps are for. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyways. um, here's the conversation between the man he recognizes and the other voice. The man says he's been doing his best to keep the people of Whitestone in order, but he thinks another show of strength is needed to keep them working as hard as they have. The other voice reassures him that everything is under control, but they need to be prepared because Lady Briarwood said that they would have, be having visitors any day now. The voice says they will gather their arms and outfit the pit and outfit the place with traps and alarms to avoid being caught off guard. Vax, using his earring whisper, tells the rest of the party to hold, waiting and listening to see what happens next. The other man does not like the idea of a fight taking place, and does not understand why the Briarwoods invited Vox Machina in. Vax tells the group about the two men in the room and says he thinks it's time to start killing. Uh, send up the Goliath, Grog. Uh, send up the Goliath is his statement, and Grog immediately becomes excited and climbs up into the closet, followed by the rest of Vox Machina. I mean, this is a very big closet, uh, except for <laughs> Trinket, who can't climb ladders, which then begs the question of how Trinket got down the cellar in the first place. But I don't guess. Um, Grog pushes the door open and sees the next room is a music room featuring a piano. The voices were coming from another room further down the hallway.
1: Also, so, the idea that a bear is not capable of climbing a ladder is not how bears work. Anyway, well, it's
0: keep going. Not that, it's not that bears can't climb, it's that the ladder can't hold them.
1: Meh. Nah. If it can hold Grog, it can probably hold Trinket.
0: A full-grown grizzly bear is heavier than a full-grown Goliath.
1: Trinket, however, is not a grizzly.
0: Hmm? I thought Trinket was a grizzly bear.
1: No, he's a, no, he's he a brown bear, brown. but uh, not, not necessarily sure. a grizzly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Still, uh,
2: yeah, uh, I'm yeah. going to push back on that that okay. idea that he's grog
1: weight. It's true. He is wearing all that bullet armor and whatnot, too. Yeah. He might, yeah, he might be heavier than grog. I'm okay. pretty certain Trigger's heavier than grog. Okay. Anyways. I will suspend my criticism for the
0: moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, they quietly gather in front of the door. Still hearing voices coming through, Vac clicks the books of haste and kicks the door in as Grog goes into a rage. The doors swing open, slamming into two bookcases on the side, and there are five people in the room, two of whom were are talking as well as three guards positioned around the room, and they turn around. And because seeming still active, what they see is a group of armed peasants rushing in, one of whom has two crazy eyes. It's <laughs> gotta be the weirdest fucking thing they've seen all day. Right. <laughs> Uh, like, but it's a bam! great way
1: to make them underestimate you Oh no, for the right? first couple of
0: rounds <laughs> absolutely bam we're here to kill you who the fuck are you yeah. <laughs> are you sure you didn't come because you're hungry um they fight uh I, uh Nice
1: nice Shakespearean <clears throat> stage directions there, sir.
0: Yeah. Uh, only if it's good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for me. Um, some notable moments. Uh Percy telling uh Carrie and Stonefell that if you're lucky you die last. Uh uh Scanlon uh using dominate person on one of the guards, uh and telling him to kill his boss. <clears throat> um Uh, this was not the one where this is not the one where Scanlan turns into a rhino. I don't think. No, that's later on,
1: and yeah. it's a triceratops. Mm-hmm.
0: A triceratops, that's right.
1: Um, Which is even more outlandish.
0: And at one point during the fight, as Percy is firing, uh, as Percy is firing at Carrion, at Sir Carrion, um the name Ripley is uttered.
1: Also, I think this is the first time we get to see the smoke. <laughs>
0: Um, yes. As, so, as Percy begins firing, uh, at Cercarion, uh, dark smoke begins to pour out of Percy's body, enveloping his gun arm. Uh, and... and Which is so, clearly a good sign. Always oh, yeah. a good sign. Uh, mm-hmm. when you're, as, when you're hitherto not magical gunslinger starts portraying aspects of magic. It's always a good sign. Oh. Um... <clears throat> Just reading. Yeah. Mostly standard, you know, standard uh Vox Machina fight. Everyone does their thing and kills a lot of people. Uh Grog uh-huh. using his Burning Warhammer, uh uh Vex going through all of her magical bowstrings. Um, and Scanlan making actually pretty effective work of his air, of his Area Effect Denial spells. Uh like get yeah. uh-huh. and cloud and and, and such. Mm -hmm. Percy, uh, seemingly single-mindedly, continues only firing at Carrion uh, throughout this entire fight. And as the smoke covers his form at one point, um, uh, he hears a voice in his mind repeating the word vengeance over and over. He puts on his bird mask, wreathed in smoke now, and resembling the entity that had come to him from his dreams, uh, he finally walks up to Carrion, staring him directly in the eyes to announce... This is for the Dorolos, and let me say, you are the one I was least looking forward to. At this point, I believe Sir Carian recognizes him fully. Uh, he had recognized that he wasn't quite what he looked like previously from the uh, through the seeming, but at this point, I believe, is when sort of clarity rang true. Um, As Percy ends him quite thoroughly. Oh, yeah. The rest of of Vox Machina stares at Percy, who now appears to be a humanoid entity made of swirling black smoke with a pointed tip of his mask poking through. Uh, Percy hears the voice again, whispering yes. He drops the gun to his side, removes the mask, and runs to a corner, and begins scratching Sir name off of the list. Rog rushes up to the guard that was headed. So uh, there's still a few enemies in the room that they dispatch with quite quite an amount of efficiency. With great prejudice, I with believe
1: the term great is. great
0: prejudice. <laughs> uh, incapacitating uh, incapacitating Voke, the other man that was in the room with Carrion, who was some sort of spellcaster, uh, with Keyleth hitting him in the face with her staff and knocking him unconscious. And that,
1: for, for my mind, besides the Percy stuff, is possibly the most cinematic thing. Because the spellcaster, who is trying to keep himself and Carrion invisible cast haste on himself and just bolts for the window. And as I recall, Keyleth basically just clotheslines him right yes. across the teeth. Yep. Right. Just
2: which is locking
0: yeah. him in the teeth with a staff. Right.
2: Which if this were a Zack Snyder film, would yeah. result it would result in 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 the, um the, the, the slow motion hit, his body sort of slowly right. flying into the air. And then, landing with a pronounced thud as as like the dust on the ground sort of gently rises up and
0: falls down yep <laughs> it was it was that uh it was the um it was the scene from that really really bad action movie. Uh, that you're gonna have to narrow that down that had angelina jolie playing an assassin that could curve bullets around people wanted wanted is a stellar movie and i will fight Um, you it's that scene from that really really bad action movie wanted uh where (laughs) where he uh smacks his boss in the face with a keyboard and the keys spell out fuck you fuck you yeah right that that that's basically what this was in my mind. <laughs> <will>
1: fight you! <laughs> I enjoyed Wanted as well, Jeremy. So you you'll I have.
0: Adjo- I enjoyed it. Just make it good. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, um <laughs>
2: also, no, if this were a Michael Bay, if it was a Michael Bay film, it would all be shot at a ridiculously low angle. You wouldn't be able to tell exactly what's going on because everything would look the same. And Keyleth would be wearing about three inches worth
0: of material. Yes. <laughs> um, Grog wants and to kill. And by Megan Fox. Uh, Grog wants to kill Vogue, saying his magic is too dangerous. Scanlan counters that they could interrogate him. Meanwhile, Percy is still looting Sir Carrigan's corpse, finding a potion of greater healing and using it using his rapiers to try and scratch the name off of his gun. As he finishes, he sees the name itself begin to glow slightly purple and then burn away, leaving just the scratch marks. Vexalia is keeping a very careful watch on Percy. Scanlan searches the desk, finding a variety of standard desk materials. He also finds some papers mentioning the bridge plan for Wildmount and a small notebook. Grog begins tying up the unconscious form of Master Vogue, and v- Vax shoves a rag in his mouth. Scanlan tells the dominated guy to stand, to stand facing a corner, and Vax knocks him out. King Lith casts Cure Wounds on Vogue to bring him back to consciousness. Grog then tells him to listen carefully to his friend's questions and to sh- and answer by shaking his head yes or no. I believe the threat of squeezing his head into a fine pulp is uh, is used at this point. Probably. I think so. I don't remember quite. Sounds about right. Because he's holding him by the head. Yes. Uh Um, From their questioning, they discover that Volk has seen the Briarwoods in the last week. He doesn't really like working for them. They know that Vox Machina is in Weistone and that they are sometimes in the castle. Volk does not know where they currently are and gives an ambiguous answer as to whether they are vampires or not. Uh Vax asks him for a way to sneak into the castle and he goes to pull the rag out of Vogue's mouth. Scanlan casts blindness on him. Vogue begins panicking and Vax pulls the rag out. Vogue begs for his life, tells him that he can show them a secret way into the castle that is unguarded. He offers to bring them into Briarwood's project room under the castle and show them what's being worked on there. Vax and Scanlan
1: They've pressure. got a little maker space down there. They just, you know,
0: yeah. do some yeah. do
1: some crafting on the weekends. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, yeah. You know. Green screen. They do, they do live streams on Twitch and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> Vax and Scanlan question what the project room is and, and what the Briarwoods are working working on. Vogue says it's hard to describe. He's only been down there once. He does say it's part of the reason the Briarwoods took Whitestone in the first place. Vax isn't to confirm that Lord Briarwood is a vampire and asks what Lady Briarwood is. Vogue says she's powerful and he's more scared of her than her husband. Seems legit. Yeah. <clears throat> Volk says that the project under the castle is an excavation or building of some sort. Percy asks how long he's worked with Stonefell. Volk says five years, confirming the he was part of the original incursion that took the castle and killed the Dorolos. Percy pulls out a map and Scanlan drops both blindness and seeming. Percy orders Volk to mark the secret entrance on the map. His arm, bouncing, can only spit them the map to mark the general area on the western side of the castle. Percy knows where the entrance is. With the from Scanlan, Volk Voke. Voke? Is that how you say the name? Voke? 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 Uh, I think it was Master Voke. I think it was Voke. Voke.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Voke reveals that the one controlling the zombie giants is Lady Briarwood, and she actually raised them in the first place. Vak shows the rag back in his mouth. Classic a lot of in and out with the rag. Yeah, a lot, a lot of in and out with the rag. It's sort of a classic character interrogation scene there. Yep. Uh, Percy Order's for provokes face to be marked and his tongue taken and then to let him loose. Grog immediately rips the man's tongue out despite pr- uh, pro- protests <laughs> to the former by everyone else.
2: I uh, mean, if somebody gives you permission to do that, you don't wait for everybody else to protest. At least Grog doesn't. You do it before they get the chance and then you can say, I didn't hear you say no. <laughs>
0: Uh, i was still processing what was said (laughs) percy fires percy fires a bullet from his gun into the ground and then takes the heated barrel and uses it to cauterize his tongue uh he then uses (laughs) the hot gun to burn the Darolo crest into vogue's forehead as the rest of the group watches in horror yeah remember when we talked about the party getting a little dark
2: when they killed the old woman yeah, that train left the station. <laughs> I
1: was gonna say, seems like that was catching.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: At least this time we get appropriate reactions from everyone. No, that's true. That shit's contagious, man.
2: I mean, this was basically this is basically like uh Tiberius saying, Yes, I can be dark and evil and and
1: and, <laughs> and, and, and hold hold my beard, beard. like, hold my beer. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Percy at least has in character justification. Oh for this yes, sort of don't get me there.
0: wrong. So we have Percy giving uh giving Volk the uh, Christopher Nolan Batman treatment. hmm uh-huh, uh-huh, Yep. Uh-huh. Um and Percy. I was gonna
1: say the the Brad Pitt Inglorious Bastards treatment, but you know that works too. That's,
0: I mean, that, you know. Um, potato potato. Yeah. Percy proposes letting vote go uh run free and then setting fire to the house. Keless immediately protests <laughs> and the group discusses what just happened and what to do next.
1: I think in terms of like that's that's pretty much verbatim.
0: what just happened? <laughs> yeah, pretty much everyone except for Grog and Scanlon are pretty uncomfortable with the what the fuck Percy just did. Grog and Scanlan are like. Eh. No, I can see that. Vax warns Percy that he is heading down a dark path. At which point, the audience in unison goes, "No shit!" <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> You're heading down a dark path. Look over, gesture at the bodies, look back. <laughs> and you know, as much
2: as a, as much as we, we're joking about it, this, this. Uh, uh, Percy's been great up to this point, but this is this is one of those points where he jumped several characters in my in my critical role ranking list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and this is partially a personal thing in that I love characters that explore that sort of inherent balance between good and darkness, and you cannot explore that without going heavily into the darkness. Um, but, but also just because it's, it creates an interesting dynamic within the group. And I know that this kind of thing is something that irritates a lot of people. When one character big starts going, going bad and causing drama within the group. I love this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, as long as it's not, as long as it's something that, that, organically fits within the storyline and facilitates the storyline as opposed to Felicity smoking it and, and, and detracting from the storyline or distracting from. It.
1: Um, yeah. And, and the dichotomy between a character that up until this point has exerted a great deal of self-control, I would say, mm-hmm. at least, especially in, in relation to the other characters in, in the setting. And then all of a sudden, the one who you're used to, you know, clamping down on their emotions, or at least, you know, just, you know, kind of when they, when they break, doing it in a corner by themselves or in their workshop, suddenly just completely loses their shit. Right. <clears throat>
0: Not just loses their shit, but loses it all over the floor. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. All over their hometown. Yep. Yep. <clears throat>
0: No, it's great. This this is one of the reasons why I love Percy so much, as a
1: especially during this storyline. Yeah, especially
0: during the storyline. Yeah, story but I I in particular love. There is a there in, in a lot of role playing games, in a lot of story, in a lot of writing. There are areas that people are reasonably afraid to tread. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm it gets into that very tired old trope of if you you know if we resort to this, then what are we if not we if not the same as our enemies, but you can't really know that until you've done it, right. <laughs> and it, it, it like obviously percy being the only human race in the group he's the most human but from a from a writing perspective and from an earnings perspective, at this point percy has proven that he is in fact the most human of the characters in this group right now in that mm-hmm. he has his highs and he has his lows and right now he is in one hell of a low well and
2: in the fact that he's human
0: Okay, I I I just referenced that before I made the statement. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh but but yeah, it's 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 that it's this he it's at this point that he sort of reached that zenith of being a person and not a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, really appreciate that, both from a writing perspective and from a viewer perspective. Yeah. <clears throat> um, eventually, they decide to set the house on fire. Is the next sentence in the synopsis. <laughs> uh, Grog grabs Volk, still bound, and throws him out the window. Why not? Scanlan tells Grog to carry the unconscious guard out of the building, and he also takes Sir Carian's corpse with them. Keeleth turns into a giant eagle and flies up onto the roof. The rest of the party heads out through the cellar and Vax, Vax, grabbing a bottle of wine on the way out to share share with her brother. Grog throws two two bodies out on the lawn. Keyleth casts Flaming Sphere and proceeds to completely misunderstand the best way to burn a building down is from the bottom up. Uh, Starts (laughs) drawing the shape of the Dorello crest into the building. Uh, She hears Volk run up to the guards on the front porch, who begin questioning him. And she takes the flaming, flaming sphere and throws it off the edge of their feet. Keyleth jumps off the back of the roof and is caught by Grog. cast passes out a trace, and Vox Machina runs back to the tavern, disappearing into the rain as the guards search for them. Citizens, citizens begin to emerge from the building as a warning bell sounds. Smoke rises up in the distance. The first steps of rebellion have been put into motion. That's the end of the episode. Yeah. So again, this is like, this is in my opinion, at least this is where the story of critical role really starts to get meaty. Yeah. Um, This is like, they, they have fully detached themselves from the silly, goofy sort of serious previous arcs um, and have dived in head first into the black ichor of emo depression drama. And mm-hmm. love it!
1: Oh, it's freaking <laughs> brilliant.
0: No, this is this
1: is where it goes from a game to a show, in my opinion. Um yes. and and that's that's it's it's a gorgeous sort of transition to watch, and it doesn't happen immediately because for that sort of transformation to take place, you have to not only have the creator, the storyteller the players, the characters on board, but you have to get the audience on board and audience, uh, inertia is a little harder to,
0: to affect. Um, but yeah, no, it's previous previous to this, the, you know, a lot, not, not all, but a large percentage of the fan base was here for the actors. Right. Um, the, 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 because they know these people and they like these people and they're popular. Mm -hmm. I think at this point is where we really start to get people that are here, not just for the actors, but for the story
1: for the narrative yeah yeah definitely
0: well yeah, that was episode 29 whispers next week theoretically if (laughs) else happens (laughs) yeah maybe uh, we'll be back with uh, stoke the flames so yeah I've been John uh, this has been Jack and Jeremy with me and we'll see you all next time say goodbye everybody bye everybody goodbye goodbye